All right, let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 1, putting in at verse 29. All these years of saying, open your Bibles, I can't, you know, I, then I have to think, well, most people don't have a Bible anymore. They have a device. Uh, whatever you want to read the Bible on, that's fine. Uh, but do follow along. Uh, it's not a matter of accountability to me. It's, it's really for you because we believe that the Holy Spirit who is resident within you and Jesus who is here to minister, they will speak to you from the text itself regardless what I have to say about it. That you can be ministered to, uh, that the Lord will give you his own Bible study, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And so follow along for that reason, if no, no other. We're looking at verses 29 through 34 this morning. The topic, John the Baptist formally introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The title of our message, this lamb is your lamb. This lamb is my lamb. This lamb was sent for you and me. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we hope to learn about the lamb who was sent, the last lamb the one who takes away the sin of the world and our sin in particular, Lord, since we're here gathered in your name. Uh, minister to each heart, Lord. Use the study and use your spirit, Lord, to fill us with the knowledge of the wonder of your love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Boxers boast some of the fiercest nicknames in professional sports. Iron Mike Tyson, Tommy the Hitman Hearns, Reuben Hurricane Carter, Ray Boom Boom Mancini, Merciless Ray Mercer, James Bone Crusher Smith, Raging Bull Jake LaMotta, the Brockton Bomber Rocky Marciano, Hector Macho Camacho. Fictional fighter Apollo Creed was the master of disaster, the dancing destroyer, the king of sting, the prince of punch, and the count of Monte Fisto. Compare these nicknames, and yes, they are real. The Punching Postman, Tony Thornton. Wimpy, Jerry Halstead. The Dingaling Man, Darnell Wilson. And in this corner, the Dingaling Man. Those nicknames don't quite have the same effect. Announcing Jesus to the world, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lion of the tribe of Judah maybe would have been a little bit more forceful, but he introduces him as the Lamb of God. It may not sound fierce, but consider this. The last book of the New Testament, the Revelation, describes the spiritual warfare by which sin, Satan, and death are once for all defeated. Jesus is called the Lamb of God 29 times in the Revelation. Satan boasts the title, the Roaring Lion, as he goes about seeking those he may devour, Lamb versus lion, and the lamb wins easily. So properly understood, lamb is the most powerful title in the universe. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, John baptized the lamb and he received God the Holy Spirit. And number two, the lamb baptizes you and you receive God the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at John's baptism of Jesus in verses 29 through 31. The Roaring Lion has other powerful titles, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the dragon, the murderer, the accuser, and the devil. He masquerades, we're told in 2 Corinthians, as an angel of light. 
When Jesus returns in his second coming, he will first incarcerate him and then cast him into the lake of fire where he will suffer eternal conscious torment forever and ever and ever. As Apollo Creed once said to Rocky Balboa, ain't gonna be no rematch. I think we're sufficiently convinced that the Lamb of God is quite a title. And so let's get into it in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is another masterful, carefully crafted verse. It is at once simple and sublime. It's best to start with the rich meaning of the Lamb of God. Jews coming out to hear John preach grew up sacrificing lambs. The shedding of innocent blood was necessary for a sinful man to approach the most holy God. The person offering the sacrifice lay his hands upon the animal to symbolize that it was taking his place. He deserved to die, but the animal would die in his place temporarily. Then the person making the sacrifice had to kill the animal, which was usually done by cutting its throat with a sharp knife. It was brutal and bloody. Priests slaughtered two sacrificial lambs every day in the temple, morning and evening. Whenever necessary, a Jew could bring an animal for a sin offering, a burnt offering, a peace offering, or a trespass offering. And so the priest would slaughter the lamb, and then during the day there'd be these other animal sacrifices, and then they would finish it off with a sacrificial lamb in the evening. Annually, the Jews were to celebrate their exodus from Egypt by each family sacrificing a lamb at Passover. Anybody's guess as to how many animals were offered during the years that the temple was in operation? Not to mention animal sacrifices for 2,500 years between Adam and Moses receiving the law. When John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, it was a stunning pronouncement to a Jew. It meant that all the lambs previously sacrificed anticipated his coming to be the very last lamb. And that would blow your mind because that meant the end of the sacrificial system in the temple. And secondly, it told that Jesus would be slaughtered the way the sacrificial lambs were slaughtered. And so you're looking at, if you're a Jew, you're looking at the last lamb, the fulfillment of Judaism, and you're realizing that John is declaring that Jesus will be slaughtered in your place. Jesus is the Lamb of God. God the Father sent Jesus. He gave Jesus to the human race to be our Lamb. He's the only Lamb God has provided. Believing in his substitutionary death and resurrection is the exclusive way a person can be saved. The Old Testament, from, from the Garden of Eden forward, the idea was that you need to have a lamb take your place until I come, God said, basically. And then the Old Testament is the story of the coming of the Messiah, and then the Gospels are the presentation of that Messiah to end all of that sacrifice once and for all. In Avengers Infinity War, Peter Parker asks his best friend to cause a distraction so he can exit the bus without being seen. Easy peasy, because when Ned looked out the window, he was startled to see a spaceship and he yells out, we're all gonna die, it's a spaceship. Now when John the Baptist says, behold, it has that kind of impact. I can't really get into it, I don't have the voice for it, right? But it's not, oh, behold the lamb, oh, over there, there's a lamb of God. 
Hey guys, check it out. It's the Lamb of God. No, this is, this is what John was meant to do to identify the Messiah. And when he saw Jesus and he knew in that moment that his cousin was the person he was to introduce, wow. I mean, this was the biggest behold you've ever heard and that's ever been uttered. Only in the case of Jesus, it's because those who receive him are going to live, not that they're going to die. Jesus' sacrifice will take away the sin of the world. Sin here is singular, meaning all sin, including the sin nature we inherit from our original parents, Adam and Eve. The death of the Lamb of God solves the universal human problem of sin. You know what's wrong with the human race? Sin. It, it, it's simple. All of psychology is trying to figure out what's wrong with people. And, you know, whether it's the id, the ego, and the superego, or Maslow's pyramids, or whatever they come up with, they, they, they'll never figure out what's wrong with people if they ignore the fact that we are born sinners and we have sin imputed to us even before that. Sin is the problem with man, and the solution is salvation, and that salvation is only in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Animal sacrifices were never meant to be sufficient to take away sin once and for all. They were only a temporary fix. That's why they had to be repeated all the time. My Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser station wagon, I had two of those tanks. Man, what a great car. But it started leaking radiator fluid. It was Christmas time in the 1980s. We were leaving Southern California to return home. My brother, master mechanic that he is, put stop leak in it. We limped home on that temporary fix. What it needed was a permanent fix, which in its case was to be taken to the junkyard. No, a radiator. I'll tell you that story sometime. Everything possible that you can think of that broke on a car, broke on that car, including the gas tank. How many of you had to replace a gas tank? Raise your hand. Any? Okay, God bless you. We're gonna form a club. Jesus' sacrifice was permanent. On the cross, at the precise moment thousands of Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple, Jesus cried out, it is finished. Now that, in, that word finished encompasses a lot. Uh, many things were wrapped up with Jesus on the cross, but one of the things that was finished was the sacrifice of those lambs in the temple. That was the last day any lamb ever needed to be sacrificed. In fact, they didn't need to be sacrificed that day because Jesus was there. That should have been the end of animal sacrifice. And it was a Pretty big clue that God reached down from heaven and tore the veil in the temple from top to bottom, signifying that the way into his presence was now open. Every person everywhere for all time is included in this three-word phrase, of the world. Let me put it another way. Can you imagine Jesus saying to anyone, I'm sorry, but I didn't die for you. Tough luck. Every person. Now, er not everyone will be saved, only those who believe and receive the Lord's sacrifices on their behalf and in their place are saved. But Jesus is the savior of the world, uh, especially those who believe. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. John was older than Jesus, but he said that Jesus was before me. He's been saying this throughout this first chapter. He may have spoken more than he knew, but this is a declaration of Jesus' pre-existence. We learned earlier in the chapter that a person called the Word was with God and was God, and then we're told that the Word was Jesus. And so he existed before John in a pre-existence as God. He existed before anything existed. 
This is the third time John has said Jesus is preferred before me. The previous two were in verse 15 and 27. He was all about people beholding Jesus. John did nothing to call attention to himself ever. He was genuinely humble. He did not care what others thought about him or how he was treated by them. John the Baptist knew that God didn't need him. There was nothing special about him that caused God to choose him to be Jesus' forerunner. I'd rather know that God wants me than needs me. Were you ever the last person chosen in the schoolyard pick? It's paralyzing. It's terrifying. I know. I, I had no sports acumen. They had to let me play. I'll tell you a story of my little league career one day, but anyway, uh, it was bad. And, and, and I, it sticks with you your entire life. <laughs> God doesn't need me. A lot of times people think, oh, what are you doing to my self-esteem? We're building your Christ esteem. God doesn't need you. He wants you. He wants you. He desires you. He wants to know you and love you and fellowship with you and, and partner with you. And so there's a sense in which I am always God's first pick, but so are you. It's a supernatural thing. There, there's, no, there's nobody at the bottom of the, of the Christian pick. We're all right up there together. I'm an absolute zero, but God saved me, and he wants me to partner with him in the gospel. And if that isn't something great, I don't know what is. Verse 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. John did not know that his cousin was the Messiah until God identified Jesus to him. John baptized with water tells us that the Messiah is going to baptize using another medium, and we'll see that it's the Holy Spirit in just a moment. Did you know that there are around 800 people who consider themselves religious Samaritans? After Solomon's death, Israel split in two. The nation in the north was called Israel. Their capital was Samaria. They set up a system of temple worship on Mount Gerizim. The nation to the south was called Judah. They continued to worship in the prescribed way in the temple at Jerusalem. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and those tribes were scattered. The 800 Samaritans claimed their direct descent from those Jews who remained in the northern kingdom after the Assyrian conquest. According to National Geographic, they consider themselves the true observers of Israelite religion and viewed Judaism as a religious practice corrupted during the Babylonian exile. At their annual Passover, dozens of lambs are sacrificed each year. I guess if it's annual, it would be each year, right? You gotta catch me on these English errors. There's also a strong movement in Israel to rebuild the temple and reinstate animal sacrifice. Guys, that's all over now in the current church age that we are in. It is finished. Behold Jesus, God's lamb who takes away sin once for all for those who believe and receive him. So we're not excited about the renewal of animal sacrifice in the Middle East, in the temple, or any of that. That's not the age in which we live. In the remaining verses, we're gonna see that the lamb baptizes you and you receive God the Holy Spirit. The Fellowship of the Ring were forced by evil circumstances to go through the mines of Moria on their way to Mordor. They came to a place where Gandalf must choose from several different paths. 
on your journey through the rich veins of spiritual wisdom and insight that are in the Bible, you're going to come to places where you must choose from different interpretations of certain non-essential but nevertheless important positions. One of those places is what is called spirit baptism or the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to talk about the controversy a little bit in a moment. First, we want to finish the chapter here and keep beholding Jesus because whatever you choose to believe about the Spirit and his baptism, Jesus is the baptizer. It doesn't matter what your position is, Jesus is the baptizer. And so let's continue to look at John's view of him in verse 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. There was a visible manifestation of the Spirit that looked like a dove to John and all those who saw it. Jesus was not without the Holy Spirit before it came upon him at his baptism, but he came upon Jesus in a special empowering for the earthly ministry that he was now embarking upon. John was sent to connect Jesus to the prophecies of the Messiah. This idea of the Spirit coming and remaining on him was something the Old Testament prophesied would be true of only the Messiah. Uh, one commentator put it this way, Jesus is the coming king, uh, the, excuse me, the coming Davidic king upon whom the Lord promised to pour out his spirit in Isaiah 11. He is the servant one appointed by God who will put his spirit, uh, man, I missed that sentence. It's got a slash in it and I was doing an internet thing. He's the servant upon whom God will put his spirit in Isaiah 42. He's the prophet who announces the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor in Isaiah. Now, those are all from Isaiah, but the idea is that when the Messiah comes, he will be someone upon whom the spirit remains. And so if you were a Jew, you, were expect, you didn't know that your Messiah was going to be the God-man but you were expecting a Messiah and you were expecting someone upon whom the Spirit would light and remain. And so when John says, I saw the Spirit remain on that guy, he was saying, that guy, Jesus, my cousin, is the Messiah we've been waiting for in the Old Testament. Now our text here, it's not a teaching on the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It is a testimony that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and part of the evidence, a big part of it, is John's testimony that the Spirit remained upon him. God the Holy Spirit was not resident in Old Testament believers the way he is now in the church age. King David writes, do not take your spirit away from me, which indicates that he could. He could be without the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean David was not saved. He was certainly saved and believed in God, but he didn't have the Spirit remaining on him for power and witness. Samson is a great example of a believer who had the spirit taken away from him for a time. Again, Samson's not unsaved. He has a relationship with God, but God withheld his spirit. The Messiah, upon whom the spirit would remain, would bring in a new relationship with the Holy Spirit for his followers. He would abide with us, in us. Ezekiel wrote, I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them the, uh, a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. In other words, you would be the recipient of the vessel of God, the Holy Spirit. And so that's what the Messiah was going to do. And so John is telling us this in these few words. Verse 33, I did not know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until the day he presented himself to be water baptized. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He was looking for the person upon whom the spirit would come and remain. John's water baptizing was a physical illustration of, John, of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Jesus received the Holy Spirit, and he would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John, by the way, is the only gospel writer that does not call John, John the Baptist. Now, it's okay that the other guys did, but John has a different focus uh, in, in what he's doing. And so he never calls John the Baptist. Jesus is the true Baptist, the one who would baptize with the Spirit, not water. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The human cousin that John pointed out and identified was simultaneously the unique Son of God. One commentator writes, while believers are children of God through the new birth, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He stands in a unique relationship with the Father. The Jews recognized that when Jesus called God his own Father, he was making himself equal with God. That's in John 5:18. And so John is all about pointing out that Jesus is the one upon the Spirit remains, and going forward in this story about knowing God, he would be the one who baptizes individuals with the Holy Spirit. Not too much else really is uh, to help us decide what we believe about the doctrine of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's not the point of this teaching. It's not the context of this, but it doesn't mean we can't talk about it now that we've brought it up. If you haven't discovered it, the Blue Letter Bible is a terrific online resource. It's available as an app and at blueletterbible.org. So all of you, if you have a device of any kind or a computer, you should have eSword on it and you should have Blue Letter Bible or be able to access that. They identify several positions on when a believer receives what the Bible labels as the baptism with the Holy Spirit. One, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is received once at the moment of your salvation, and you're done with it. Two, the baptism with the Holy Spirit may be received when you are saved, or there may be a delay in receiving it. Three, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is always received after you are saved and there will be an outward manifestation of him such as speaking in tongues. We would dismiss number three immediately. It's altogether contrary to the teaching of the Bible. Our answer, if we can call it that, would be in one of the other two positions or some mediating position. Now we read about spirit baptism in 1 Corinthians 12 where the Apostle Paul says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so is Christ. So all Paul is saying is, to be a Christian is to be a member of the body of Christ. That's an illustration for what it's like to be a Christian. Just like uh, a body has a head and hands and feet and all the other necessary parts, internal and external, uh, Christians as a group can be seen as that body of Christ all fitting in together. And so then Paul says, for by one spirit we were baptized into one body. And so what he means is that when you get saved, you're immersed in 
that relationship with God and with everybody else. You've entered that in. That is the baptism with the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would bring. New birth into a new walk connected with every other believer. And so it's true, the moment you are saved, God the Holy Spirit baptizes you. Those who hold that the baptism with the Spirit only happens once at conversion nevertheless teach that a believer needs fresh fillings with the Holy Spirit. And so even though they argue that you're baptized the moment you believe that's it, that's the baptism with the Spirit, uh, and that part of it's true, then they say, but we're going to need fresh fillings. I don't see why they can't just call those fresh baptisms, but we want to argue about things. Those who hold that the baptism with the Spirit happens once at conversion, uh, well, listen to charismatic scholar Gordon Fee. He writes this, seems like he agrees with them at first. He says, the early church simply did not think of the Christian initiation as a two-stage process. For them to be Christian meant to have the Spirit. To be spiritual, therefore, did not mean to be some kind of special Christian. For them, to be spiritual meant to be a Christian, not over and against a nominal or a carnal Christian, but over against a non-Christian, one who does not have the Spirit. You know, today it's common for us to talk about people and we say, man, that guy is really spirit-filled. He is a spirit-filled Christian. And I don't think we mean to slight anybody, but the idea we have is that you can be a really spirit-filled Christian or you can just be a regular average Christian. And, you know, of course, you know, you want to be spirit-filled like these people over here. Gordon Fee, who's a charismatic and believes in the power of the Holy Spirit, he said, when you study the early church, you had the spirit or you weren't a Christian. It wasn't, uh, you know, the spirit-filled Christian versus the nominal Christian. It was the spirit-filled Christian versus the non-Christian. And so every Christian is spirit-filled to that extent. He goes on to say this, however, what we must understand is that the spirit is the chief element, the primary ingredient of our new existence. It is not merely a matter of getting saved and forgiven and prepared for heaven. It is above all else to receive the Spirit to walk with power. And so ideally, you're saved and you begin walking in the empowering of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I said ideally because that isn't always the case for various reasons. Giants of the faith, men like D.L. Moody and R.A. Torrey, speak of a further experience in their lives of the Holy Spirit. Moody, for example, wrote this. I think it is clearly taught in Scripture that every believer has the Holy Ghost dwelling in him. I like that, the Holy Ghost. We, we got to bring that back. I'll, I'll use spirit instead, though. So uh, every believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. He may be quenching the Spirit of God, and he may not glorify God as he should, but if he is a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in him. In other words, he's baptized with the Spirit. Though Christian men and women have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, yet he is not dwelling within all of them in power. In other words, God has a great many sons and daughters without power. What if you are saved but are not experiencing the Holy Spirit powerfully in your life? Well, consider the following from Scripture. Jesus spoke to his disciples of a coming further, what they call baptism with the Holy Spirit, and he called it the promise of the Father. Acts chapter 1, wait and the promise of the Father will come upon you. Twice in the book of Acts, after that, this baptism is called the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, we read this. 
If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Promises are kept by the promiser. They don't depend on the promisee. In this case, it's unconditional. You have been promised the power of the Holy Spirit to live your life. Gifts are given freely to be received by the giftee with no prerequisite. Today, we talk about gifts having strings attached and things like that. You know, it's, Christmas is coming and it's like, ah, now I got to get Aunt Maud a gift because she sent me a gift. But when we talk about God giving gifts, there's no, it's here, this is yours. It belongs to you. I'm giving it to you. No strings attached. Asking God for the Holy Spirit is always answered yes, Luke says. The baptism with the Holy Spirit for empowered living is a promised gift your Heavenly Father does not withhold when you ask. It is normal to be enabled to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit from day one of being immersed into the body of Christ. If you're not experiencing that power, you can experience it. The best position to take is summarized by Moody when he says, the Holy Spirit in us is one thing and the Holy Spirit upon us is another. God the Holy Spirit is a promised gift that the Lord cannot withhold if you simply ask him. That's what the Bible says. So where do we lose this connection? Where, where maybe sometimes in our lives where we're not walking in this power, not experiencing it. One thing I would suggest is in our asking. Because I've noticed in my own life and in the lives of Christians, we ask for the wrong thing. So let's take a job situation. I don't want to do marriages because I like you happy. But uh, let's, let's take a job situation. And I, you know, there was once in my life I worked for a living too. And so I can still relate to this. But uh, take a job. It's not unusual for a Christian to be really burdened at their job, at their place of employment. Your boss is just a terror. I mean, he just never should have been uh, promoted. He does everything wrong. He has it in for you. Your fellow employees are, you know, giving you a hard time. The work itself is, you know, there should be five people doing what you're expected to do. I mean, the list goes on and on, right up until the fact that I have to give to the coffee fund, you know, and, and you know, they're forcing money out of me that I don't have. And I mean, people, we complain about our jobs. What do we ask for? Well, if we're honest, we ask for another job. Lord, give me another job where people respect me and where my boss is kind to me and where I can really flourish. Lord, I don't want him to die, but it'd be nice if I didn't have that boss anymore. <laughs> Isn't he up for promotion? Or how about this guy? Why can't he trans... I mean, there are a lot of ways we pray for our circumstances that absolutely do not involve God the Holy Spirit. And from what I'm getting from this idea is, is that what we should be praying for is, well, we should be going into it knowing, Lord, this is a, a, a battlefield. This is my battlefield. You've given me an opponent, Satan, who uh, has these people doing what he wants. And so I'm going to go onto the field of battle armed with whatever you've given me, and I'm going to rise above the things that I can't stand about this situation so that I can be a Christian witness here. And you know what, Lord? I'm asking you to empower me to do that. And, and I'm going to wait on you to do that and believe you to do Because, Lord, you said that I 
that you promised me the Holy Spirit as a gift and that all I needed to do was ask for it. And in the Luke passage, even though it says you ask and seek and knock, it isn't that you're begging, please give him to me, and that you have to prove to God you're sincere. The whole point of the passage is that God wants to give you the Holy Spirit because he's the best giver there ever was, better than any earthly father. And some earthly father, if you're an earthly father, you want to give gifts to your children, more so God. And so we need to revise our praying. You know, people need to come for counseling and say, I need to know how to pray that I would rise above this circumstance, not how I would get out of this circumstance. And you can apply that to the whole Christian walk. The Lord says, this is where you're needed. I think a few weeks ago I said, if you're not in that place, right? Let's say you're in a particular job and it's terrible. If, you know, there's all this pressure then when you get, I'm not saying you can never leave your job, but when you leave and get another job, some other poor Christian soul has to come in and take that place. Would you wish that? You know, I mean, you're willing to say, I wouldn't wish my boss on anyone. Great, he's been given to you. (laughs) Or your employees, you know, whatever situation you're in. The idea is that you need to believe that you have the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what the Holy Spirit is what? Is he a force or is he a person? He's a person. You can't have just part of him. If he indwells you, if he is God, the Holy Spirit, if he is a person, you have all that he has. You don't need to be, it's not, you know, I know we sometimes say, well, I feel like I'm half full. No, you're not. You can have that feeling. I mean, you have to be full full because he's a full person. You don't just have him from the waist up. Uh, He's not crippled in you. It's you and I, and I put myself, you know, do I always walk in the spirit? If you've talked to me, you know that's not true. So, I mean, that, but it's possible. Ask, believe, receive, repeat when and if necessary. Let's pray.